0: James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And as he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray father God we thank you for we thank you for your word we thank you for how you speak to us through your word for how we know you through your word um, and pray that you will speak through Ryan today I pray that his words will fall aside but your word will remain that you will open our hearts and our minds to all you have to say to us today it's in your name we pray amen
1: if you're new with us, we've been tracking through the book of James for 12 weeks now, and we've got a, uh, a couple more to go after this um, as we've just been working our way verse by verse through the book of James. And, and today we're, we're getting into uh, one of the themes of James's letter, which is prayer. He talks a lot about suffering. He talks about faith and works and deeds and all those kinds of good things, but the whole thing is kind of wrapped up in prayer. And he gives us really this really concise theology of prayer today that's really helpful. And, and, and to me, as I've looked at it, it's, it's no surprise that James would do that. You know why? Because James grew up in the same house as Jesus. Now, James didn't believe in Jesus, maybe even while he was on this earth, but he did come to believe in Jesus. But he learned about how to pray. He was discipled in how to pray, even before he had faith in Jesus. Uh, Jesus' uh, prayer life was one of unceasing Prayer. And it was because Jesus had this, this unity with his Father that was just uninterrupted. It didn't matter if he was here on this earth or not. I mean, a lot of times I, I, I think we forget that about, about Jesus. I mean, could, could, you, uh, could you imagine what, what it would be like for Jesus to, to acknowledge uh, the fact that, that he felt at, at, at one time in his life separation, but other than that, he had perfect union with his Father in heaven? Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, has helped me kind of understand what that would be like. So imagine it like this. Imagine asking Jesus how he's doing. And he says this, my father and I are doing great. He has given me everything that I need for today. And you respond, okay, James, like, or Jesus, I'm glad your father is doing great. I mean, that's, that's awesome, right? But But I want to know how you're doing, James, or Jesus. And, and, then, and then, you know, Jesus would look at you and you ask him that kind of with a bewildered kind of a face, like, like you were from like outer space or something, because he knew not what it was like to not be connected in unity to his Father. Yet, yet there was one time in his life in the gar- Garden of Gethsemane when he felt the separation, that when, when, the, when the, the sin of all of the world was poured out on him and he was going into the cross and he felt that separation, there was one time that he uttered a prayer where he didn't know the unity with the Father. You remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that on the cross. He felt the separation. Now here's the difference in Jesus and his prayer life and, and me and you and our prayer life. Is that functionally because of the fall? We come to him off of the, you know, in the garden of Gethsemane with the feeling of separation. We we fight for the unity, but we feel straight off the get go, we, we feel the separation, we feel the forsakenness, and we have to fight through that to believe and confess and trust in the unity that we have through our Father because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that is what a prayer life is like a life of praying. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 as he talked to his disciples right before he would go to the garden and go to the cross. He said this to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, So what do you mean, Jesus, you can do nothing? That means that you can't obey your parents' kids, that you can't complete that test that's right in front of you as an act of worship, that you can't go to work today and honor God with your life, you can't do that business deal, you can't have a conversation with your spouse, you can't have a friendship with someone else unless Jesus stands in between you in that relationship or that activity that you're about to pursue. That's what he's saying. That if you want your life to be a life of worship apart from him, you can do nothing. Yet I don't know how many times throughout the day that I do things without Jesus all day long. And do you know how it's revealed that I do things without Jesus? So I'm not praying about him. That's really the big idea of where James takes us today. It's this. Prayer is the evidence of a life abiding in Jesus. Prayer is the evidence of a life Abiding in Jesus. So here's what we see from James chapter 5. We see uh, first when we should pray, second, we see how we should pray, and third, we see what makes our prayer powerful and effective. All right, so let's dig in to James chapter 5, verse 13 here. Here's what James says Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So it was a normal morning for me about three or four years ago, uh, and I was posted up at one of the local establishments that I typically like to find myself at and and call it an office, and I kind of rotate through places from time to time. I was at IHOP for this season, um, and we would kind of beat the crowd and, and be over in the corner for, for meetings that we'd have. And, and um, you know, Over this meeting, this this guy that I was meeting with, we talked about a lot of really troubling and trying things and a lot of really joyful things, a lot of things we saw God doing. And then uh, we just got up and we walked out. And as I was in the parking lot, uh, this guy looked at me and he says, hey, we've talked about a lot of things and we haven't prayed about them. You mind if we do a couple laps around the parking lot and pray? And I I hate to tell you this, but but I, I looked at my watch and I thought, Yeah, sure, okay, I'll go pray, you know, because you you get in these moments where you think, you know, I don't really have time to pray. But then as a pastor, you can't really verbalize that, right, that I don't have time to pray. You just kind of do it. And so we walked around the parking lot for about 30 minutes and prayed about these things. It was freezing cold outside, and I was just convicted that day about how many times I don't invite, invite God into the things that I'm pursuing in his kingdom, the work that he's called me to do the relationships he's called me to invest in, the, the struggles that I have. And, and James says, listen, the, it doesn't matter what season of life you're in and what cards you're being dealt by life and God's sovereignty, everything is an opportunity to pray. The, the people that I'm closest to in the world are people that I have shared experiences with. Some of those shared experiences might be like these, you know, a fun rock climbing trip or, or something like that. Or, or some of those shared experiences might be sitting in their living room weeping with them because of this tremendous loss that they felt. But here's what I know about those shared experiences. They are the conduit of what builds a relationship. Like, you don't have a great relationship with someone just because you sit next to them in class for 12 years or their cubicle is across the hall from you. You have a great relationship with them because you have traveled along life's journey through its twists and turns and you've shared experiences together. What prayer is, is it's inviting us to, to invite God into those moments of our life, those shared experiences, not just the planned ones that we have on Sunday mornings from 10.30 to whenever we finish preaching here. Uh, but, uh, but, it's, but it's every single moment of our lives. And, 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 and here's, what he, here's what he says. He says, no matter what the situation is, Let him pray. Now, the thing you'll notice about the five verses that we're looking at today in James is that in every single verse, he says, let him pray. He should pray. Call for prayer. And he talks about all these different situations that we could be in. He he says this, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I love to to pull up to the stoplight, um, you know, especially... A lot of times, like on Lawrenceville, Swanee Road, I'll pull up to a stoplight. I'm in the front. Someone else is in the front. Their windows are cracked a little bit. The music is, is blaring. And they're, it's like a scene off of American Idol, right? I mean, they're, like, they're just like totally getting into it, man. They're just going nuts, singing their hearts out. And I just look over at them, and, and I've got my list of things, and I'm busy in trouble, And I just smile because I'm thinking, man, something in their life is causing them to sing today. And you can't sing when you're angry, right? you got to be happy when you sing. And that's why God calls us to sing, and that's why the response for the person that is rejoicing and cheerful is singing. That's why we as a church sing together. Sometimes you feel like singing, sometimes you don't feel like singing. And sometimes when we don't feel like singing, we come into this room and other people sing for us, right? Because we have these moments and these seasons that are worthy of praise and worthy of prayer. And what is singing if it's not prayer? What is it? We're singing our prayers to God. So my question to you, just as we kind of get into this, what season are you in today? Where is the invitation for you to enter in to a deeper attitude of prayer with your life? Maybe you're rejoicing coming in here this morning, or maybe you barely got here. Where is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart and inviting a deeper relationship through prayer? Where is it for you? Have you pursued that? Do you pray? Do you do that? Ask yourself that question. If I have a relationship with Jesus, how would anyone know that I have that relationship? Is it kind of marked off on my calendar like my relationship with my wife and my kids and my job are? Do I spend that time with Him? Second thing He goes on to say is this: How we should pray. James chapter five verses fourteen through sixteen. Let's let's, uh, let's read this together. Is anyone among you sick? as it's working. Prayer is the evidence of our abiding in Jesus. The, the Bible knows nothing of an individualistic journey with Jesus. There were, several years ago, I encountered a man that had visited New City, and and uh, I was out to lunch with him and, and just getting to know him more, and I was trying to get him connected because, like and I'll just say this today, if you're only connected on Sunday mornings, it's impossible to experience this at a deep level. It's, it's impossible to experience the thing that that Jesus has given to you, which is his church. If you're just connected on Sunday mornings, we have to do more than just this together. This is important. We have to do more than this. And so I, was, I was trying to get him to connect it to some people that he could confess his sins to, live in community with. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I just need God's word. I don't need his church. And as we began to unpack that story deeper and deeper and deeper, I realized that this man had grown up an orphan and was tremendously hurt by the church. He had all these barriers up. And for him, the better way for him to live was to hedge his bets and trust himself. The problem is you cannot be healed if you don't live in communities, is what he's saying. You can't be spiritually healed for the sin that you bear in the darkness unless you have a community of people that you're sharing life with. The first thing he says is, is, what does this community of prayer need to look like? First, you pray with your elders. Pray with your elders. You know, in, a, in, a, in the American church, we don't have a, a high view of belonging to a church. The problem that it creates for us as an elder team at the church is we have no idea who God has called us to shepherd and not unless you tell us that. We don't have any idea. And in Acts 6, what you see is there's this scene where the, the physical needs of God's people are becoming overwhelming to the elders of the church. And so what they do is they, they say, okay, the word and prayer really matter. The physical needs of the people of God really matter too. But the same person really can't accomplish both of those effectively. So what you see in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at this deeper in a couple of weeks, is is that the, the apostles set aside this group of men that are that are the first deacons in the church and they're 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 to to care for the distribution of the widows that are there in Jerusalem. And so and so what they what they then do is they they clarify that the role of the elders of the church is really a focus on word and prayer. Word and prayer. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do to lead the church leading session meetings, elders meetings, and, and buying property and all that kind of stuff, and helping buildings get you know, overseen and stuff like that. But the, the main thing that we're called to do as elders of your church is to focus on the Word and to pray for you and with you. Did you know that? How many times have you taken advantage of the fact that God has put people in your life and He's called them with a the burden for your soul and asked them to pray for you? Have you ever done that before? James gives this specific occasion in a person's life that would warrant special prayer for, for healing and sickness specifically. And, you know, at, at this juncture in New City Church, there's six elders, myself plus five of us. And we're not. there's nothing special about us other than the fact that we have this extraordinary burden for this particular local church to grow up in Jesus in every way that you possibly can. And so, but what we see a lot of times is that there's this American way to suffer that doesn't involve the local church. Here's what it looks like. You, you suffer as lone, uh, alone as, as long as you possibly can. You, you, you bear your sickness, and, and then things get really, really bad. You know that something's wrong, and so you kind of leak it to your family. Those closest to you. And then one night, things get really, really bad, and you end up in the emergency room or the doctor's office. And then, and then there's some kind of prognosis, and then there's some type of treatment, and you pursue that. But most of the time, not once do you think, I should call the elders of my church. I should let my church know about this, because we have this, this great healer, the physician, Jesus Christ himself, who's called us to pray, that's called us to lay hands on you for your healing. N- not once do we stop to consider that most of the time, because we don't want to be an inconvenience. Yet at the same time, God's called us and laid this burden on our heart to care for you in that way. No, notice that he says, don't let the elders find out about from another missional community or another person. He says, let him call the elders. So the responsibility is on the congregation, the parishioners of the church to reach out and say, hey, I really, really, really need prayer right now. Would you pray for me? Now, he also gives kind of this kind of specific instruction on what this prayer looks like. In many situations, the, the elders are, are called to anoint with oil if someone's sick. Now, this oil isn't some special healing oil that comes from some special place like Jerusalem or something like that. It's, it's ordinary oil because the focus is not on the oil. The focus is on the prayer, right? But, but in, as you look at the context of Scripture, oil has a, has a certain purpose in it to signify and symbolize consecration, that we're asking God for something very special in the situation. And so there's the physical thing because Jesus is very physical, right? This is why we have the Lord's table. This is why we have water baptism because we're physical beings. And so when we pray for that, he says, you know, call them to to anoint this person with oil. And we've done that from time to time at New City Church. And we've seen people be healed. Now, I'm not saying that there's this special gift of healing that this person has in our church. The Scriptures show us that that that's no longer in effect. But what we do see is gifts of healing that Jesus himself gives through our prayer. So we would be foolish not to lean into that in the midst of sickness. It's also important to, to remember that in first century culture that oil was medicine. And today we're kind of like on a revamp of that, right? Essential oils, most of you got that thing going in your living room that smells all good and stuff. Some of you are laughing. Um, oil is medicine, right? So I, I think it's also interesting to think about when you, when you think about healing that oil is applied. I think it opens us up to, to think about the reality that many times that God heals through medications, that God heals through the hands of physicians, so when you think about healing, don't just think about this miraculous thing that happens overnight and nobody knows about it. Sometimes it's gradual. But we do know this about healing, is that God doesn't heal everyone we pray for. Je- Jesus didn't heal everyone who was sick that he encountered. That there's a lot of mystery involved in healing. And so we don't, we don't know all of the answers to that. But what we do know from James 5 is that God calls us to pray for the sick. And the sick person ought to initiate that, to call for the elders of the church to come in and to pray. And, and some of you in this room are dealing with sickness right now that you just, you just keep into yourself. It's just, you're just bearing it alone. You're isolated right now. And maybe God's calling you to step out and to, to ask for prayer. I'll encourage you to also notice, as he says in James 5 here, he says, um, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, it, it's interesting because sometimes sickness and personal or hidden sin are linked. When Jesus healed a blind man in John chapter 9, remember verse 2, what did the disciples ask him? Who sinned? This man or his parents? So, there was this belief that, 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 that sickness and And these types of things were linked to sin. And Jesus responded to them. He says, it wasn't that either sinned, but that this has happened that the works of God might be displayed. So James is kind of drawing the scenario up like this. Okay, whenever the elders visit this sick person, it's an opportunity to simply ask the question, is there any sin in your life that might be causing this? It's it's an opportunity for you to take inventory. Is there any sin in my life that, 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 that may have kind of put me in this situation and And because we're such physical beings, sin is related to sickness a lot of times. I mean, think about this. A a consistent worrying that you have in your soul that causes stress and produces headaches when the Lord has told you not to worry about tomorrow, right? Or you have such anxiety about the future that it causes ulcers and you're just sick and you just can't eat and you just feel nauseous. Or any abuse through our bodies that might lend itself to cancer. It could be substance abuse or anything else. There are times when our sickness is linked to our sins. So it's just an opportunity to, to, to say, God, do I have any sin in my life that's causing this? I'm not saying that it happens all the time, but it's an opportunity to just invite the Lord into that. And, and here's the beauty of it that if we confess our sins, He says, we'll be healed, we'll be forgiven. So even though our bodies might not be healed, our sins will be forgiven. There is a sense that we could say this about healing, that because Jesus has come to make all things new and he's risen from the dead, that at the atonement we got our healing. There is a a sense that we could say that, that we can believe that our souls were ultimately healed and our bodies will eventually be healed in the new creation. But there also is a sense where sometimes God breaks through miraculously and he causes people to be healed and he does it. Through our prayer. Secondly, he says this uh, about confession and prayer in your community. Uh, Let let me read it for you again here. James chapter 5, verse 16. And this is one of those verses that, that needs to be underlined. It needs to be remembered. You need to think about it weekly. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, so this is the idea of kind of what the church is. A lot of times, especially in the culture of Atlanta, we think about, when we talk about church, we're talking about a building. Like, give me the address, the brick and mortar. That's why you guys are like bold and courageous people because you are going to something that's not actually a church to most people, right? Like people look on the outside, it's like, oh, you guys meet in a middle school. Listen to church, but when you understand from what the the scriptures say that the church is the people of God on the mission of God, held together by the Spirit of God, you get the deepest sense of what the church is. It's a people. It's a people that have been chosen and called out of darkness into light because of God's great love to live consecrated lives to Jesus alone. And so what we see is that the church is about communion with Jesus, and that communion with Jesus is not a communion that stands alone. It is a communion that is shared in community. One of the most important things that I could tell you this morning is that the community of God can absolutely change your life. And some of you know that. Some of you don't. God's design is togetherness. And it's funny because the world's longing is togetherness, is it not? That's why the internet was invented, right? It's because we wanted to be linked. We wanted to have information, we wanted to know things. That's why social media is on your phone because you long to be together with people. That's why some of you show up for groups in people's homes and you gather together as God's people because we were not made to be alone. You see that even from the garden. It wasn't good for Adam to be by himself. He needed a helper. God created Eve so they could have community to share God's love with one another. But most of our community is superficial at best. And and what I mean by that is is when we read James 5.16, if that's not a part of our community, then it's superficial. It's not dealing with the things that we really have going on in our lives. It's because it's not humble enough to shoulder the weight of actual real-life sinners. And that's what your soul needs. Your soul needs a community that can handle the fact that you are actually a sinner. Anything other than that is just a facade. It's just a veneer. What your soul needs is a place where you can be a sinner and hear, hear about the healing grace of God. So our, our union with Jesus that births this with one another is, is made for so much more than we, than, we, than we tend to pursue a lot of times. It's it's made for more than just a barbecue or a game night or a book study, and those things are great and necessary, but it's given as a gift to help your soul be nurtured and healed by God. Confession in community is a way that God gives us real-life assurance of pardon. Like we can read from 1 John 1-9 that if you confess your sins, that you'll be forgiven because he's faithful and just. We We can read that. But it's a completely different thing when somebody looks you in the eyes and says, brother, I know that you're a sinner. You've just told me you're a sinner. But you know that Jesus Christ died for you and he loves you. It's a completely different thing for someone to do that to you. That, that in fact, that, that's what brings the healing in your life. There are some of us in this room that are functionally taking on the devil alone with our sin. And guess what? We're losing we're losing because our, our our lives don't have joy. We don't have the victory that Jesus has intended us to have over the enemy, and it's because we're isolated and are absolutely in bondage to sin, and no one knows about it. That might be you in here today, because this has been me at different junctures in my life. I, I was reading a, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called "Life Together" this week. It's like a hundred pages. It'll change your life if you can pick it up. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give you just a snapshot of what he says about confession and community because it is so crucial for us New City Church to understand the heartbeat behind prayer and how confession leads us to the most effective prayer on the face of the planet. He says this, "In confession there takes a place, there takes place a breakthrough to community. In other words, it's like you haven't experienced community until you've accomplished confession with community." Because sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over their lives. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Because sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. And this can even happen in the midst of a pious community. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and closed isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said and openly confessed. All that is secret and hidden comes to light. And it's a hard struggle until the sin crosses one lips and Confession, I want to pause just right there because you think about what it is in your soul, in your life right now that you wish no one would ever find out. Whatever that isolating battle is that you have, the hardest leap you will ever make is confession. And the closer you get to it, the more that the enemy absolutely trembles because he's about to lose his power over your life. He goes on to say, Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of another Christian, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. In other words, the last thing that you were holding on to that was giving you life in and of yourself is finally and fully abandoned. That you are bare before God with nothing other than Jesus Christ. Think about that freedom. It's terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying to think that Jesus could be my only righteousness. Brothers and sisters, when you confess your sin, that's what you're proclaiming with your lips. is I don't have it together. I've never had it together. And guess what? Here's the laundry list of how I haven't had it together. But there was this man that gave his life for people like me, that he could become our righteousness. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. Church, do you want to be free this morning? Confess your sins one to another so that you can be healed. Do you want to be free? If you're not experiencing that freedom, I guarantee you probably have not confessed your sin to another believer. Now, here's the deal about confession. Like, this week I've had two different friends that have confessed sin to me, and it's not like I'm a priest and I've got this you know confession booth set up or anything, but just friends of mine, and and they've, they've confessed their sin, and one of them, I confessed my sin to him. One of them, it was something that we kind of had against each other and, and kind of didn't know about, but the enemy was just kind of stewing behind the background, and he was able to confess his sin, and I was able to forgive him, and then I was able to confess my sin, and he was able to forgive me, and now our brotherhood is deeper. Another brother... Confess just a, just a personal secret sin that he had that just had power over his life. He was reading James chapter 5 and he thought, you know what? I've got to confess this because I need healing. I can't, I can't do this on my own. A church that is a biblical church will experience this. Now, if you're in a discipleship group or a missional community or you've got another group of believers that you share life with, it will absolutely be terrifying when you enter into this. I promise you it will and the enemy will try everything that he can to keep you from doing it. But when you confess your sin, you open the door for the light of the gospel to break through into your heart and to heal your soul. Don't we want that, church? Don't we want that more than anything? Yeah, we do. When was the last time that you confessed real sin to somebody in community? Not, not just kind of you know, sin that's uh, tolerable, but, but real sin, what's actually going on in your soul? When was the last time that you did that? Do you have that type of community that could actually bear the weight of real sinners? Because we've got to be willing to take the mask off with one another if we want to experience the healing and the life that Jesus intends for us. Where is the hidden sin in your life? Has it been uncovered? Has the light shone into it? Because this is the clear path forward for us. We should not expect to find, to find freedom from the bondage that we're in if we're not willing to confess our sin. You can't expect it. If you're not willing to do what God has called us to do, we can't expect to find freedom. And he's given you that community here and now. And if you can't do that at New City Church or in a community at New City Church, friends, you've got to find a place that you can. You have to find it. You have to find it. Thirdly, what makes our prayer powerful and effective? Isn't this really what we want to know right here? Here's what James says in James 5, 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't forget that. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and Heaven gave rain and the earth its fruit. One of Megan's family members called me, this was several years ago, um, as, as her husband was nearing death. And she quoted this verse to me. I think she quoted the KJV, which says, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. And, uh, and, and she said, would you please pray for Tony? Would you please pray for his healing? And, and I, after we got off the phone, I was like, yeah, sure, I would love to. I, but I was racking my brain through what this actually meant. Because I didn't really consider myself to be a righteous person. And so, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, maybe she's saying that somehow that, that my walk with God's a lot different than hers or, or somehow there's kind of this secret formula because I'm a pastor, which you guys all know that's not true, um, that, that my prayers are kind of heard more maybe. And so I went on this hunt through the Scriptures about righteousness because righteousness is the key to whether prayers are effective or not okay? Righteousness is what we're after. That's what makes prayer effective. That's what makes prayer powerful. So the first verse I look up is a real encouraging one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. I'm thinking, man, what in the world? Like, how is my, no one's righteous. How is my prayer any different than anyone else's? So in other words, righteousness is the one thing that you and I desperately need, but it's also the one thing that we don't have. It's the one thing that would make God bend his ear to us as we pray to him, but it's the one thing that we don't have. It's the only thing that will make him hear us. Now, we're not righteous and cannot be righteous on our own, And, and when there are times in my life where I try to bring my own righteousness as an appeal to God, right? You know, God, look at the things that I've done, okay? I, you know, I haven't done that sin in like six months, so I mean, this prayer's got to count for a little bit more, right? And we, we kind of think that way, but you know what your own righteousness is? It's this shoddy, kind of beat-up righteousness that's, that, that kind of doesn't look good, and it, it's, it's kind of ugly, and, and you kind of try to shine it up, but it, but it never really looks as good as you think it does, and That's what it's like when we come to God and we we try to offer him our righteousness. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I'll let you look that up on your own this afternoon, what he was talking about there. But uh, it's not a pretty sight. So your righteousness is like a filthy rag. But it's the only way that we'll be heard. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what Jesus Christ came to do for you, church. He came to make your prayer powerful and effective. Here's how he did it. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew, not, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has come to make you righteous. Do you know what that means? Righteousness means that we are always doing the things that God has called us to do and set out as his plan for our lives. That when we obey his law, when we follow his commands, when we live in his grace and we sink ourselves into it, that it makes our prayer a prayer that's powerful and effective. So really, for us, as those that depend on Jesus' grace, it's really how well can we abide in Jesus? How well can we stay in him and abandon this false righteousness that we've depended on to try to get our prayers heard for so long? How well can you stay in Jesus? Because your prayers are going to be powerful And effective as you stay in Jesus. Have you ever wondered why people pray in Jesus' name? You ever wondered that before? When I was a new Christian, uh, I used to think that it was like this magic formula. Like, you know, I'd pray for a new bike or, you know, uh, an A on a test or to, to get a hit in my baseball game. And, you know, then it wouldn't happen, and so I would rack my brain and say, you know what, I didn't say Jesus' name. That was it. I just prayed for His name, and so I'd go back and I'd say, like, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name a couple times and, and think maybe that would kind of seal the deal for me. It's not this magic formula, that the reason that we pray in Jesus' name. It's because we're coming to our Father in heaven with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, that's what's got us into the door. That's what's bent God's ear to us, is the perfect righteousness of his Son. And so we come to him in Jesus' name. Jesus stands between us and God. And we, we pray through Jesus' life, through his obedience, through his sacrifice, through his grace, and his forgiveness. And when God looks back at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not just the fact that you got forgiven for whatever sin you committed this morning, but it's like you, you always did the right thing. So you're coming to Him in the righteousness of Jesus. And when you come to God in the righteousness of Jesus, it changes the content of what you pray about, doesn't it? It changes the things that we pray about and the focuses that we have in our prayer lives. And and let me just say this. As Christians, we don't relate to anyone or anything except through Jesus. It's the only way that we can relate in a redemptive way is through Jesus. And that's why... We abide in him. And that's why prayer is so essential to our lives. That we can't go a day without Jesus' blood covering us. We can't make a phone call without Jesus' blood covering us. We can't take a test without Jesus' blood covering us. We can't have a difficult conversation without Jesus' blood covering us. And how, does, how do we know that Jesus' blood is covering us? Through abiding and through prayer. Now in closing, there's just kind of this thing that I want to mention about Elijah here. He gives this example. He says, consider Elijah. Consider his life. And uh, so he's the most, one of the most powerful prophets people look at in the history of the world and because he's had so much favor with God. Now, King Ahab, bad dude, bad king, right? He married this lady named Jezebel, right? She, they didn't have the same faith. And King Ahab didn't have uh, a backbone enough to have faith in his God, and so he took her God, Baal right? And then he just, the whole nation of Israel worshiping Baal. Can you imagine how fiery hot God was? He was. And there was Elijah. He had a nature like ours. What kind of nature was that? Sinful nature. Yet his prayer was heard. His prayer was heard. A righteous man or woman their prayer is heard, and it seems like this contradiction. We're sinful, but our prayer is heard, but it's because we're in Christ. But, but the thing about it is this, is that, you know, Elijah was looking forward to Christ's righteousness, the Messiah that would come, Yahweh, who would give him righteousness not of his own. And the Reformers called this alien righteousness. Not, not that it came from, like, Mars or anything, but it's a righteousness that's not from us, Right? And so we have this gift of this alien righteousness, this thing we never did to deserve that we get as a gift. And that's how we pursue God. That's how we approach God. So Elijah stood up as this guy. He's like, pray like him, have faith like him. But when you read the next chapter of 1 Kings, you see his nature showing. Let me read it for you. Then Elijah was afraid. This is after Jezebel said she was going to kill him. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So there you have it. Elijah, the guy that we need to we need to be like, right? We need, to have, we need to wear God's righteousness like Elijah did. We need to approach him boldly like Elijah did. But on the other side, he's, he's suffering suicidal depression one chapter later. Church, is that not the spectrum that each of us find ourselves on today? Somewhere between suicidal depression and somewhere between living perfectly in Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness for us is like a suit that, you know, it doesn't fit real well sometimes, you know? You kind of wear it, it kind of feels a little, it's like my brother, I got him, he he moved from having like real baggy jeans, I got him straight leg jeans. You would have thought I put that guy in like jeggings, all right? He's like, man, these things are just so tight. We don't know how to wear Christ's righteousness so many times. But you know where we learn to wear it? Through prayer. Through sinking ourselves into Jesus. So no matter where you're on that spectrum today, it's no reason to fear but it's a, it's a reason and a motivation for us to abide more deeply in His righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we just come to You today in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we come to You. The friend of sinners and the friend of tax collectors and the lover of the lowly. The one who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. God, we come to you and we say, our yoke is heavy. Our burden is heavy. We need Jesus and we come to you today in his righteousness and it doesn't fit quite right for us. So would you teach our hearts, would you train our hearts to abide deeply in his love, God? to come to you as children who are still working this thing out. God, would you help us to find grace and mercy in our time of need this morning? Would you help us to sink ourselves into your community, your family that you've brought around us here at New City Church? That it might not be just this facade of people in a living room, but we might actually be able to handle the weight of what's really going on in our lives because we believe in you. Would you give us courage to confess our sin. Would you give us courage to be weak among the leadership of the church and to ask for prayer? Would you give us courage to abide deeply, to surrender all of our false righteousness, all of our shoddy, beat-up, self-interested ways of approaching you and fully abandon ourselves to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.